A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Arkham Files, usually your actual play Call of Cthulhu RPG podcast, but we are lucky enough today to bring you another edition of our Arkham Files dossiers, our interview series where we sit down and have cool conversations with interesting people from the gaming and geekdom world. I am Alex, your usual host and keeper of arcane lore, joined here by my co-host Pete. Hey everybody. Also, sometime keeper, but probably better known as Dom Drunkard from our show's main storyline. And I'm very pleased to announce our amazing guest today hails from what I'm guessing is his secret lair in Sherwood Forest, since he says he lives near Nottingham, England. He's being cagey about it, but seeing as how he's in the area and that he's also a legendary hero of the people, I think we're on to him. From there, he robs from the rich talents of his own pool of creative wealth and gives, us, gives it out to us poor gamers who are always starving for our next handout of incredible tabletop entertainment. He is a writer and game designer who has won more awards than I care to count. Literally, I stopped counting at like seven because the list just kept going and going. And that's just since he's been working at Chaosium where he is currently the creative director for the Call of Cthulhu tabletop role-playing game, the one we all know and love. He's also the commissioning editor and lead writer for the whole line and has guided the development of the entire series since 2013 with over 40 books to his credit. Previous to that, he won even more awards, working on the Warhammer 40k RPG at Games Workshop, where he co-authored Dark Heresy, as well as being commissioning editor and developer on numerous other titles and products in that series. I am incredibly pleased to welcome fellow horror movie and ghost story aficionado and feline subjugant, the one, the only, Mike Mason. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. 
Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate you making the time. It's awesome to have you here. Really excited to talk to you. Um, so just to kick things off, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, what initially sparked your interest and how you got into tabletop gaming? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, this going back in the mists of time. Uh, but Oh, yeah. Um, we love um, the origin stories. Sort of back in the late 1970s, um, I knew nothing about role-playing games. I loved games. I loved board games. Mm-hmm. And um, but that was that was all like that's the only games I knew. Um, and a friend uh, was having a birthday party and invited me to his birthday party. And I was kind of expecting, you know, the kind of typical birthday party that, you know, I'm trying to think how old I was, you know, eight, eight or nine years old. Right. Um, and I turned up and it's literally uh, everyone's in his kitchen around the table and it's him, me another friend and then his older brother and uh his older brother's friend as well and they're sitting around this table with these books and this what i would now tell you is a floor plan you know cardboard floor plan with miniatures on it um and i said well what's this oh we're playing we're playing dungeons and dragons i no idea what that was but it looked cool the miniatures looked really cool um and we um we rolled dice i mean i didn't no idea really what I was doing other than there was lots of skeletons and we were beating them down <laughs> basically um, and uh, and grabbing treasure. And it was loads of fun. Um, and we just kept playing and, until um, w- until uh, his older brother's friend, who's the one who was running it and owned all the miniatures, said he had to go home and we all wanted to carry on playing. So we managed to persuade him to leave all his stuff so we could carry on playing. <laughs> Um, and that was my first um, kind of experience with it. And I was hooked immediately. I just thought this was the best thing ever. Um, and particularly, uh, I love the miniatures. They really kind of were a really focal point in terms of being able to kind of, um, you know, watch you know watch the game unfold before me. And it, it really mm-hmm. helped. Um, and it wasn't long after there, then I kind of like said, well, this, you know, where do I get this thing called Dungeons and Dragons? Right. I discovered um there wasn't a there wasn't a game store in the town that I lived in, but the the next city along, um, there was I kind of I don't know how I found out, but I maybe word of mouth, found out there was a shop that had all this good stuff and um managed to persuade my father to drive me over to the city to, you know, uh pick up uh the what was the you know the basic D D set then and uh and I haven't really looked back since. I mean, that's 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 how I started. That's awesome. Um, it's so funny. Like, I I want to see if I can find the very first older brother that discovered Dungeons and Dragons, since it seems like that's how all of us got introduced to it. Was your our older brothers or somebody's older brother somehow showed up with this mysterious game? I want to find where that that first older brother and what legendary figure he is. <laughs> yeah, this kind of unknown hero, isn't it? Right. <laughs> that brought us all into that. So it's just, like you said, just kind of been downhill since there. You uh, got hooked as a kid. And did you just play consistently through the years? Um, pretty much, yeah. I mean, um, you know, when you're, you know, that age, you have all the time in the world to game. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we did. Um, even to the point when, you know, I went to... Uh, uh, the upper school kind of thing. I was in the rugby team, 
Um, and about half of the rugby team also played D&D. So we would meet awesome. on a Saturday morning, play rugby matches, and then go and have a shower and then meet around one of our houses and play D&D all afternoon kind of thing. It, it, it was just part of life. Um, and that carried on through school. I ended up, when I went into the uh, in, into our sixth form, the kind of, um, uh, you know, just pre-college, I guess you'd call it, um, I there wasn't a role-playing club at school, so I set one up. Um, and, you know, had loads of people turn up every week to run games and, and play games and so on. So the only time I had a break was really when I went to university after that. I kind of, uh, I did a I did a degree in theatre studies and drama. And um, I did actually approach the role-playing club in the university I went to, but I wasn't particularly impressed. Yeah. So I didn't go back. Uh, and so with me doing a drama degree, I kind of did a lot of role playing every day of the week anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't really miss it. Um, and it wasn't until I left university and then kind of got back in the real world that I kind of had the pangs to kind of pick it up again. And, and literally, you know, a few weeks after leaving university, I kind of started playing again. You know, I had all my old school friends still around. So we just kind of carried on. Um, and um, yeah, you know, that was really the only break for me. Yeah, that's uh, that's cool. That's a. Uh, it's interesting that you uh, that you study drama at university. It's, I've I've been wondering, and it's it seems like it's it's pretty consistent with a lot of you know people in our circles, uh, that they go into one of those fields. Do you feel like that was something that was? Were you always interested in that, and that is something that fueled your interest in role playing games, or do you feel like the role playing games kind of kicked off your interest in in drama? Um, it perhaps did a little bit, but, but, it, but the truth of it was, I was well into Call of Cthulhu uh, before university, and mm -hmm. I, I remember actually going to have a chat with the head librarian of this of the university library, to thinking about a career in being a librarian, and that was purely because of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, um, and kind <laughs> of between awesome. that, between there, and actually thinking about what I wanted to do, I kind of figured out no, that's that's not what I actually want to do. I, I actually want to do something more, more about communication and, and, uh, and so on. And so, um, so that's what, you know, so I'd already, had, I'd already had, I already had an interest in drama anyway. I'd been doing productions at school and all that kind of thing and community production. So, so that was kind of ran parallel to my, you know, gaming as well, you know, and, there, and there's a lot of crossovers, you're quite right, but, but they were in a sense, separate things in my head at the time. Um, right. and so I, you know, I went to pursue drama and, uh, um, but it's been a, certainly a, a bunch of transferable skills that I got from doing drama that I've incorporated into not just gaming, but most of my working life, to be honest, because at right. the end of the day, it's all about communication. Right. And, for sure. Uh, communication and telling a story. Yeah. You mentioned, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Dungeons and Dragons was kind of your your gateway into gaming, and then uh, uh, just barely you talked about how you you were into Call of Cthulhu before you got to university. When did you start to kind of explore more games in addition to Dungeons and Dragons, and when did you find Call of Cthulhu? Um, it didn't take long. I mean, I played D and D a lot for for you know for quite a few years, um, but it wasn't long. I mean, it, I you know very quickly. Um, you, I, I guess you've heard of the White Dwarf magazine that was a role playing games magazine in the UK at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't long before I started picking up copies of White Dwarf, and as soon as you open that, 
a lot of D&D content, but you're exposed to Traveller and RuneQuest and all these other kind of uh, games that were popping up overnight uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and so very quickly, as the kind of my the kind of expanded community of role players that I knew in terms of the people at school and their family and brothers and et cetera, um, somebody would rock up with, you know, the Traveller box set, you know, and we go, well, that looks cool. What's that? And, um, and you know, you get into a game. And, and so very quickly, um, we, were, we, were, we were always still kind of playing D&D, but we would always go off and try, you know, played Traveller for some time and Room. Quest for some time, and they were, you know, they were the big three, um, and uh, that kind of kept us going for some time. Um, and then uh, um, Call of Cthulhu came out in um, nineteen eighty one. Mm. Um, it was around, it was probably took the end of about you know nineteen eighty two. By the time it kind of travelled across the Atlantic and got into the hands of you know my group of friends. Uh, and it was a friend of mine, a different friend, um, who actually had some Call of Cthulhu books. And um, he was showing me them at school. And I was blown away by the covers, the Tom Sullivan kind of covers to the uh, the Asylum and Other Tales and Shadows mm. of Yoxathoth. Um, and, um, and I just thought the covers were fantastic. And, and he was saying, well, and I, but I didn't know anything about Cthulhu. I, I you know, no idea what it was. So it was a kind of mystery, kind of horror kind of game. And that, I mean, I love, and I've always loved horror stories and films and books. And so that kind of really rang a bell in my head. Thinking, oh, a horror role playing game. I've not seen one of those before. That, that, we'll have to give this a go. And so, um, we started playing, you know, I started as a player playing uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, and actually, one of the, one of the earliest things we did was, uh, we played through Masks of Anathotep. We never finished it because we all died horribly, uh, you know, <laughs> near the end. But um, but it was a you know, great experience. And again, pretty much as soon as I started playing Call of Cthulhu, I was completely hooked, more so than when I started D&D because, as I say, I, I like fantasy stuff, but I love horror films. And uh, so this mm-hmm. was like my you know, absolute juice. So... Um, so I was immediately into that. And so I, I picked up the, the books straight away and um and started running pretty much straight away. I played a few games initially, but then just kind of overnight, I kind of just became the default, you know, GM keeper for Call of Cthulhu in our group. Right. Um, um, you know, somebody else ran D and all, all that kind of thing. But but people just kind of, well, no, you you do you do the Cthulhu, you're quite good at that, apparently. So that's what um that's what I did. Um and it wasn't long before, uh, you know, I just started writing scenarios because, you know, and it, role-playing is a very creative hobby, isn't it? There's, there's most of us have a mm-hmm. desire to kind of write our own stuff. And and uh, and um, and it was just a great excuse to regurgitate all these horror films I've seen and just turn them into Call of Cthulhu plots, you know, without too much work. And um, right. and so that, yeah, and then, you know, we, we were playing D&D, I'm sorry, Call of Cthulhu for... Trying to think, uh, so uh, ten years on non-stop, really, with that group, just playing wow. anything that came out and homebrew stuff, and yeah, that's cool. That yeah, that's awesome. It's I love to hear about those long-running games where you know groups of friends that have been just playing for years and years or decades even. Uh, oh sure, well, I mean we have we have we have to change characters every other month because they all kept dying. <laughs> <for that. laughs> 
that was fine, you know. Right, of course. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so at what point did you, did you transition from being, uh, you know, just, uh, aficionado and player into the professional realm? Like, how did you actually break into uh, the game development, game design industry? Um, I, it was, um, fanzines is where I started. Um, well, the actually fanzines and conventions is where I started and the, um, Convention started just a little bit before. So I knew some people who actually ran uh, a games convention. And so uh, I kind of helped out. You know, I would come along, not really help run the convention. I'd just turn up and run Call of Cthulhu games. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and so I got a little bit of a name for running Cthulhu games. You know, people would come back and want to play again. Uh, and I really enjoyed the convention experience. So I started to go to other conventions as well, running Call of Cthulhu and it just occurred to me, wouldn't it be cool if there was more Call of Cthulhu games at the convention, but I can't run them all. So I, I can't remember how I did it, but I managed to find some other Call of Cthulhu keepers, convince them, why don't we kind of work together and we'll offer a suite of Call of Cthulhu games at this convention. Uh, and I started this thing that was called the Cult of Keepers, which was literally that, a bunch of uh, Call of Cthulhu keepers We'd go to a show, we'd run loads of games and have a cult. And have a cult. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and that kind of turned into that we would all write our own scenarios. Uh, uh, and kind of the deal was with the Cult of Keepers is we'd go to a convention, you'd run your own scenario, but you would run another person's scenario from the group as well. So, so in that way, we got a real mix of scenarios. And also, you got to kind of. Um, um, write for other people and play mm. other people's scenarios as well, so which is a kind of a good learning experience. So that was happening already. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking to myself, we're generating all these scenarios that we're only playing a few times at conventions. Wouldn't it be cool if we could share them? And um, at the time, um, we'd had in the UK, we'd been really well served with uh, a, call of, a Call of Cthulhu fanzine called uh, Dagon. Uh, which was uh, put out by a chap called Carl Ford, who uh, unfortunately passed a few years ago. Um, and that was a real hub for all kind of Cthulhu play in the UK. And obviously in the US, you had Pagan Publishing's The Unspeakable Oath. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were both kind of doing similar things in slightly different ways, but but both kind of being hubs for the community in, in, in the different countries. Um, right. And about the time that I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool to you know, maybe send these scenarios off to one of these fanzines, um, both of those fanzines kind of went defunct. Dagon stopped very abruptly, just kind of overnight, just it never happened again. And um, although The Unspeakable Oath, you know, is still published today, it went through a big hiatus and nothing came out. And it's, you know, to us in the UK, that just seemed like, well, that one's died as well. So because there wasn't, there wasn't a fanzine at the time that I could then go and send these two, I just kind of said, well, if they're both died, why don't I just do one? And it was literally just right. a case of, well, if if they'd have still been going, I wouldn't have done what I'd have just sent the stuff to them. Mm -hmm. But they um they weren't. So I just um, set up a fanzine called The Whisperer, um, and um with the intention to publish these scenarios. And and the and the, the ironic thing is I never did publish those scenarios in that. I used because <laughs> once I put the word out through various news groups, you know, back in the old internet days. Um, of saying, hey, I'm doing a new fanzine. Anyone want to contribute anything? I got loads of material and it was all great. So I just kind of filled it up with that. And um, and it kind of worked 
that I, I did five, five issues. It was one issue a year. They were quite big. They were big kind of, you know, near US letter size kind of publications. Um, and they kind of every issue would grow a bit more. Um, and I did, um, you know, the first few issues were quite general, but then I did a, a Gaslight Cthulhu special and a, a Dreamland special uh, and a kind of a modern day-ish kind of one as well. Um, and so they did really well, but they... Um, uh, and I say that, that, you know, one a year for five years, more or less. Um, and in doing that, I contacted Cosium and sort of said, hey, I'm doing this fanzine. I just want to let you know and make sure you're OK. And we kind of had the conversation. They were like, oh, you know, do you, you know, are you going to make any money on this? And I said, no, I'm going to lose money on this. And I mean, that's cool. Just, just as long as you put the the legal line in, we're, we're all good. You just carry on. It's all good stuff. And so I, that was kind of one of my initial kind of um, interaction with Cosium. I kind mm-hmm. of had already met uh, one or two people from the organisation at conventions. They'd been guests of honour at some UK conventions. So I kind of got to know them a little bit through that. So there was a, you know, starting to kind of establish a relationship. And so by the time I was, you know, into issue three or four of The Whisperer, um, I was kind of having semi-regular kind of uh, conversations in terms of um, um, early email with, with uh, people like Lynn Willis, who was the the line editor for Call of Cthulhu at the time. And and so every now and again, Lynn would say, "Hey, I've got some text um, that's about something to you know something to do with England. Will you edit it? Will you give it a look over and check it's okay?" So mm. there was and you know nothing massive, but little bits and pieces that I would. Um, just help them out with, you know, it wasn't paid. It was just kind of, you know, it was good to be asked. It was like, oh, I'm helping Cozium. I'm helping the right. game. That's great. Yeah. That was all I was and after. I got the relationship started. I got the relationship started. And that kind of turned into some more uh, more kind of bits of editorial work. And the, and the kind of the biggest one I did in terms of a book that you can you know, still see is is the uh, Ghostswood and, and Other Unpleasant Places, which is the kind of the Ramsey Campbell source book for Call of Cthulhu uh, that Scott Panalowski was the main writer on and obviously that's all said in England so there's a lot of that that Lynn passed to me to kind of give it an eye over uh, and so on so that was the the first big publication that I kind of worked on I guess Um, but as as I say I kept meeting up with people from Cozium at various conventions as we go down through the years you know meet Sandy and playing Sandy's games and discovered mm. that Sandy loved horror films and hey, I loved horror films right. and you just start, start swapping recommendations and you, you've you got to see this film, you, you've not seen it and all that kind of thing. So yeah. I got to know him and Charlie Crank and, and, and so on. Um, uh, and so it's about um, between issue four and five of The Whisperer, which would be around about the year 2000, 2001, um, is um, I was working in the real world doing a real job and, right. um, like, and I was, but I was a bit fed up with it, and I wanted a new job. And I opened up um, a, a newspaper, and I kind of work in, I work in kind of media and marketing and all that kind of thing. And so I opened up the kind of media jobs, and uh, there was an advert for Games Workshop for a wanting a events manager, which is kind of what I was doing at the time as events management. Um, and I kind of thought, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll apply not expecting at all to get it, thinking this will go to somebody, you know, who's really into Games Workshop, because I kind of fallen out of love with Games Workshop at the time, because 
Mm. I was into games when it was a role-playing company. Now, in then it became like a miniatures and war games company, which I right, thought was yeah. cool. I had no problem with, but it wasn't really my thing. I was into, I was a role player, yeah. mm. um, and I was thinking, well, they'll, they'll just know that I'm not really a war gamer, and <laughs> you know, I won't get the job. Of course, I got the job, and um, moved to Nottingham, and um, you know, started to work for Games Workshop, and uh, kind of rediscovered my love of miniatures which was what one of the first things that drew me into all this and obviously <laughs> games workshop are pretty good at doing miniatures so uh, right. I, I, you know, that that worked out okay um and so i was working at games workshop uh in the gaming industry although i wasn't in games development and creation i was you know in a sales support capacity running events and community events and so okay. forth um and um i guess the next kind of bit of the puzzle is um games workshop uh well a chap i knew at games work he, he was he was slightly higher up than me at the time he'd basically been appointed to basically reopen games workshops old board games and role playing line uh, under a, a a sub company called black industries and mm. uh and he was saying, "Oh, we're going to we're going to redo Warmer Fancy Role Play, and one day we're going to get around to doing a 40k role playing game." And, oh, so that's great! Well, sign me up for play testing, and and you know anything I can do to help. Yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah. So, Games Workshop released Warmer Forty, uh, Warmer Fancy Role Play, and redid Talisman, mm-hmm. the board game, and so forth, and started working and uh, developing the 40k RPG, and. Um, I was playtesting the 40k RPG and um I wasn't enamored by what I was getting to playtest. <laughs> and um and obviously I knew the people that worked in the role-playing side. And so I kind of went over and said, give, give them my feedback and said, I'm I'm not sure this is going in the right direction. I mean, I, you know, what do I know? You know, it's not for me to tell you how to do it, but I've got reservations, so I'm, I'm just sharing them with you. This is I like this, but these bits I'm not too sure about. And we had a kind of big, deep conversation about it. Um, and I thought nothing more of it. And then uh, a few months passed, and then I kind of was contacted and said, hey, we're recruiting for uh, Black Industries. We need a Black Industries manager because the person that's been doing it, they're leaving. Uh, you know, We're looking for somebody. Uh, we're not saying you can have the job, but if you want to apply for it, We'd welcome you application. So um, I applied for that, got that job. Kind of, it was like, you know, I'd opened my mouth and said, well, I think we, I think you need to do this and this. And it was like, yeah, well, now you go and do what you said you were going to do. So um, kind of put my foot in my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, so, um, so yeah. So I, uh, I ended up working at um, Black Industries, which is uh, an imprint of Black Library, the, the fiction wing of Games Workshop. Mm. And um, and that was a creative role straight in. It was I was I you know I picked up the manuscript for what was going to be Dark Heresy, the forty k RPG, and mm. it wasn't finished. You know I had to finish it and I had to go through it all and make sure it all worked. You know kind of thing. So and I had a deadline of I can't remember what it was now. I think it was three months. It, it was a hard deadline because obviously Games right. Workshop works with hard deadlines, and yeah. um, it was a you know. I mean, obviously, I'd written for role players before, but not in a, you know, not a, not a four hundred page rule book that you know right. was that's be a, a yeah, that's massive a big IP property <laughs> for so, uh, scenarios for your buddies. Yeah, exactly. So that was a kind of a bit of a baptism by fire, and uh, 
happy to say we met the deadline and uh and got the book out to you know good reviews and good mm-hmm. success it was um we sold um 30,000 copies before the day of release in pre-sale which was the entire print run so that was right. really cool um and then yeah, one day after it had gone on sale um games workshop announced it was closing down black industries <laughs> right. and uh licensing yeah, the entire lot to fancy fight games so yeah, i just that's... launched a very successful game and then didn't have a job right yeah that's that's something i did want to ask you about like how shocked were you when you did put all this time and effort in and you had a great release great reception sold out your pre-sale and then right and then they turned around what two days later or so and announced that they're closing down black industries that must have been a trick kind of i kind of well i kind of knew it was coming but i didn't know. okay you know what i mean i i, I kind of you know had kind a of sense a buzz. Around the but office I kind type of thing. Sense that might, they might go, well, you've done a reasonable job. We'll, we'll keep you around for something else. Mm-hmm. But no, it was kind of no clean cut. You know, we're selling that all off, and you haven't got a job anymore, so you're made redundant. So, wow. um, so it was, uh, it was a, a little shock, but not as big as a shock as it could have been because I kind of saw a little, saw it coming a little bit. Um, okay. And um, uh, so, yeah, so I then was, you know, out of the games industry again, and went back into what I would call the real world again, outside the games industry, working in, uh, working as a marketing uh, manager and in a completely un, you know, uh, unrelated trade. I, I was working in um, training and education, right. particularly in, in um, training people, you know, bricklayers and construction workers and all that kind of thing. Um, so mm-hmm. miles away from what I was doing there. Right. Um, but um as I said, over the last 10 years or more, I'd built this relationship with Chaosium and they knew that um, I ran lots of Cthulhu games and I kind of had knew what I was doing with Call of Cthulhu to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. So an opportunity arose. And obviously by then I'd met Paul Fricker, who's my co-writer on the new edition of Call of Cthulhu. Right. Uh, you know, he was part of the Cult of Keepers back in the day and we'd kind of kept okay. in touch and so on. Um so we we had just been batting around the idea about isn't it time for a new edition of Call of Cthulhu because the old edition had been out I'm not sure now over ten years let's say mm-hmm. and we felt it was a little bit creaky and also not very um, uh, new player friendly um, right. the rule book wasn't really laid out in a very welcoming way I mean it was fine for us we knew we knew where everything was because we've been playing so long but if you're mm-hmm. new to the game it seemed quite a bit of a barrier um so we've been kicking around those ideas for a little while and talking about well what would we do and you know that kind of thing and we ended up at uh, a convention in the UK called Continuum and uh, it happened that um Charlie Crank the the then president of Chaosium uh, was over as a special guest and obviously I knew Charlie because we'd met few times previously right he'd even played in one of our games and his um cool. his son had played in the game as well and that so we you know we knew and um um so basically we just colored me and paul colored charlie charlie you know we we're at a quiet moment and just sort of said are you are you thinking about doing a new edition of the game because we'd love to help if that's something you're thinking of doing and he, he basically very quickly went, yeah, we'd love to do a new edition of game. Yeah, we'd love you to write it. So um, it All wasn't right. 
we didn't really have to sell the idea really it was, like, <laughs> it was more kind of we weren't really expecting to turn around and go yeah go and do it we just thought another one of those oops say, moments yeah. where you're like wait one of those oops yeah <laughs> um and so we kind of agreed that okay well we will me and Paul will go away we'll go and do something and we've no idea how long it's going to take us but when we've got something to show you we'll show you and then we'll have a conversation so there was okay. no there's no deal, there's no contract, there's no talk of money, no talk of deadlines. It was just, we have an idea, it will go and do something. And if it ends up being something, you can then say yes or no, basically. Yeah, right. no pressure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So then for four years in our part-time, so I was doing my day job, and then in the evenings, um, talking to Paul on the phone every other day about, you know, what do you think about this? And discuss discussing rules and, and outcomes and so forth and writing and him writing and checking his stuff and him checking mine and, you know, this kind of rotating kind of workflow uh, going on for, you know, four years, you know, on and off. Uh, you know, we've played with us both playtesting things, you know, with our groups and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, by the end of four years, we had something that was like a rule book and, um, and um, at that point, we kind of got back in touch with Charlie and said, do you still want it? And he kind of went, yeah. Um, and so we sent it over to Charlie. And then that's when we started to get into playtesting and uh, feedback. And it went out to a few people, you know, kind of, you know, friends of Chaosium, you know, uh, uh, Call of Duty writers and so forth. And they sent their feedback in. Some loved it. Some hated it. Some were kind of 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um and we kind of refined things and refined things with, you know, with the uh, guidance of, uh, you know, Charlie and so forth and and and, uh, and that kind of feedback until we had a kind of a, um, a game that looks very similar to what we have now. Um, right. And that's when I um, basically instigated a kind of a worldwide playtest. So uh, myself and Paul got a kind of a, a playtest rules pack together and uh, and then we just did an open invitation. If you want to play test Call of Cthulhu, get in touch. And so hundreds of groups did, and we sent out the rules and told them we'll be sending out a survey. Please let us have your feedback. And what was great, every, pretty much everyone gave us feedback, and it was really useful feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, it really identified um, things that were working, things that were more problematic and so forth, which allowed us to... Yeah, to refine it further and, and determine what was what was going to stay in, what could be thrown out, and so forth. Um, 
and then you know finish it off basically uh to the point that it you know could be finally handed over to Kersium as a, a done deal um mm. and it was kind of uh because that obviously Kersium were doing a kickstarter and um uh so and we were just you know we were just the writers who might you know we weren't employed by Kersium we we were just throwing in ideas to for the kickstarter to try and you know get as many backers as possible but we weren't really involved um and it's kickstarted successfully and um and one of the rewards of the kickstarter was uh there was a certain high level that if you paid x amount cares would fly me and paul to gen con and you would play in one of our games basically cool. um and that was you know that was kind of our main reward really for right. <laughs> um so uh, we rocked up to Gen Con and we ran these special games and, and that was all wonderful. Um, and it was at the Gen Con, Charlie turned around and said, well, we haven't got a Call of Cthulhu line editor. I think we kind of need one now. We're going to do a new edition. Would you like to be it? And so I, I kind of, you know, thought for about one microsecond and went, yeah. <laughs> Good one. Right, yeah. That, that would be kind of my, my dream job, wouldn't it? See you um, later, regular job. And... Um, <laughs> By chance, I mean, I don't, it might it might be just Charlie feeling sorry for me. But I, the job I had been doing, um, that firm had, had actually just been sold as well, literally like a few weeks before Gen Con, oh, that man. had been sold. And so everyone in the company was made redundant. So I didn't actually have, right. have a job when I went to Gen Con. So it was maybe Charlie throwing me a lifeline. I, I don't know. But um, but certainly uh, they did need someone to uh, to help shepherd the line um at that point anyway so kind of lucky coincidence um yeah so i was able to kind of you know take that on i mean you you say that charlie throwing you a lifeline but after you just delivered this huge product and you got this kickstarter off the off the ground he probably seems more like he would have been crazy to be to not lock that down (laughs) well yeah i mean i'm sure i'm sure that's there's some truth in that too but it was very yeah i was very fortunate in in that regard God, it was, you know, I'd, I'd gone to Gencon expecting to run some games and come home, and that was it, you know, right. I, and that was it, you know, maybe, maybe we'd approach Charlie uh, uh, to uh, maybe write and, you know, uh, some scenarios down the line or something like that. That was literally where we were with it, and then, you know, came back with a with a new job, basically. So that was all, you know, cool. <laughs> so, mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so, and kind of I've been at Kersim ever since, to be honest. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you guys were, you and Paul, I, so you, you and Paul were the primary writers and obviously from what it sounds like and, you know, getting that, that seventh edition up and running, uh, and you, you talked about your, your time with your, you know, working on dark heresy, heresy as being kind of your baptism by fire. This sounds like it was a little bit more casual of a project, but was there also a little bit of that element too? I can't imagine that there wouldn't be any trepidation on, you know, stepping into the shoes of like a legend, like Sandy Peterson to try and update his rule system for a call of, for, you know, call of Cthulhu, which is probably the second biggest role-playing game, uh, in the industry, you know, it's been around for 30 years. Uh, what was it like stepping into those shoes and, and trying to take on a big task like that? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, somewhat nerve wracking. Um, I mean, the, the, what was kind of good is because we had this new edition and we had to kind of get it out for the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was a, a, a big pressure to, to get it out and, and to get it and do it right. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to worry about everything else. It was kind of, we've got to get all the typos out of this and we've got to clean it up and we've got to get art, um, uh, commissioned and, and, um, and Chaosim had 
in their wisdom had put all these stretch goals on that now also needed to be delivered. So even though the main bulk of writing on the book had been done, there's still a lot of work to do to finish a book off. Um, but things like, you know, call, um, Pulp Cthulhu had been added as a stretch goal and that didn't exist. There was nothing. So um, <laughs> right. as Classic soon as I salesman said, selling products that they don't uh, have yet. Finished the rule book as much as I could. I was starting to work on, right, what's Pulp Cthulhu? And, you know, determining <laughs> what that book would be and so forth. So there wasn't a lot, of, a lot of time to sit around. In fact, there's not been a lot of time to sit around for the last 10 years. Okay, so it's been <laughs> right. know, it's a... It's a, it's a um, treadmill to you know a good treadmill you know but you know what's what's after this book is the next book and uh, we want every book to be brilliant and great and better than the last one so it's it's a you know you're always sort of striving to try and improve quality across the board where you can and um and so um it's you know a non-stop thing almost but um yeah but you know you you just at some point you just got to dive in with both and hope you can swim that's cool. You mentioned uh, Pulp Cthulhu. It's one of my favorite settings for for Call of Cthulhu. I've run, you know, uh, several several pulp games. Um, uh, how do you when when you're developing something like that? That's a supplement to to the existing game. How do you find a balance between making it and different enough to where it's you know it's a different experience, but still kind of true to the to to the game itself, so that you know your players aren't playing something basically not getting to the point where your players are playing something that's that's a different game entirely yeah yeah i mean it's a it's a really um important point uh and that's something i'd spend a lot of time thinking about with pop cthulhu because it would be so easy to turn it into you know a game that's very action orientated and but isn't doesn't feel like call of cthulhu and so it's it really it was a case of trying to pin down well what is the heart of a call of Cthulhu story and the heart of a Cthulhu story is often is is the horror and and mm-hmm. and a mystery for Call of Cthulhu mm-hmm. um and so you can still have a mystery in Pulp Cthulhu it's just that you get through it quicker basically <laughs> it's kind of understanding the difference between if you think of Call of Cthulhu as um standard Call of Cthulhu as a slow burn um, and Pulp Cthulhu is a fast burn, basically. And, it, and right, it, yeah. as long as you kind of have that in mind, then then you're able to just, and it literally is just tweaking and twisting the dials on Call of Cthulhu, kind of turning them up to 10 and 11 in some cases to make them more, because ultimately it, it's kind of like when you watch, um, particularly like the first in the Indiana Jones movie, you know, when it first mm-hmm. came out when you were a kid and you're already, you're already playing Call of Cthulhu, you came over again, like, that was like Call of Cthulhu, you know, maybe not quite, well, actually the first film, yeah, quite a lot of horror in it, melting faces and <laughs> right. strange rituals and all that kind of thing. This isn't far off from Call of Cthulhu, but it was much more action-orientated than most Call of Cthulhu games in my experience. Um, and so, really, I just kept thinking of that film when I was writing Pop Cthulhu. Right, okay, so what would it be, what would we do different than it, than in the normal one? Well, Indy doesn't muck around. Um, you know, he he always makes his library use role. He always does it. So <laughs> right. the clues became much more kind of obvious, and um, you have to fight less to get the clues. The clues are more or less free. It's really what you do with them and where it takes you mm-hmm. um, in terms of the journey with pulp. And so that was a kind of a, a key kind of flavor difference. Um, but ultimately, you know, pulp is, uh, is about thinking, thinking and then maybe acting. Um, and pulp Cthulhu is more about just do it, 
don't think, do it, basically, <laughs> is, the, is the, the intention, which is why the kind of the use of the look points as a kind of um, uh, uh, an agency for the players did, provides a little bit of a safety cushion as well, because you can right. you know, buy off they, you know, damage to some degree or prevent things or or not get damaged at all because you've you know used luck to beat the enemy in some way when you do an attack roll. So it provides that kind of a little bit, it allows the characters to be a little bit larger than life and to have fate kind of go more in their more in their way more of the time than in normal Call of Cthulhu when, you know, although you you know you can as an option use luck to adjust dice rolls. Luck is a is a much more precious resource in straight Cthulhu. It's, it's you don't get much back. It's not replenished very often. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Pulp Cthulhu, you replenish pulp every game session. You get more of it. You can spend more of it, and you can do more things with it. So it's much more kind of a fluid kind of thing than than in uh, standard Call of Cthulhu. And that really is the engine that drives the difference. It allows okay. players to do larger than life kind of things in in, in that regard. That right, sense. really ramp up that Indiana Jones adventure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like my my touchstones for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom mm-hmm. and the Mummy. You know, oh, yeah, right. It's kind of like if 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 a game can feel like those films, oh, then that's I think a we're okay. Yeah, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Uh, you mentioned with Pulp Cthulhu specifically, that was one of the stretch goals for Kickstarter. Um, so it sounds kind of like you basically were thrown Pulp Cthulhu uh, from, you know, here you go, Mike. Uh, great job on 7th edition. Here's here's your next project. And there, we've seen several of those kind of different um, settings uh, come along, um, you know, down darker trails, those types of things. How many of those and which ones were you just kind of thrown? Like, hey, here's a project. And how many of them did you were, were kind of your uh, were you, you know, integral to at least coming up with the the idea from the beginning, from conception? It, it kind of balances out. I mean, the, there's um, Down Darker Trails was something that kind of not long after I started at Chaosium was something that um, was offered to us um, because Kevin mm-hmm. Ross is the, the kind of the, the lead writer on on Down Darker Trails had kind of developed these books and um, basically came and said, "Look, I've kind of done them. Would you be interested?" And we said, "Well, that sounds." Great, yeah, we, you know, some Wild West Cthulhu. Why not? So some things were kind of opportunities, um, um, and then um, some things were just in the history of games, where, um, in the history of Chaosium. So uh, mm-hmm. Gaslight uh, and and Dark Cthulhu Dark Ages kind of already existed, um, and so there was a kind of well, we can update these and and put new 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 versions of them out for uh, Cthulhu Seventh Edition. And so um, some of them are kind of natural kind of progressions. Um, and then, like any Call of Cthulhu book, it comes down to, is it? does it sound cool? If it sounds yeah. cool, <laughs> will people want to play it and, and you know, get it? And uh, and so you kind of, you know, has this little double test of, is it cool? And is it cool enough that you want to buy it, basically? Right. Uh, and I'm a Call of Cthulhu player, and so I go, well, I think it's cool. I would want to buy it, so I think everyone else would. So. <laughs> So, um, it, you know, it, you know, it goes through little hurdles to kind of whether it's something we can take on um, and develop. And um, what you've got to remember is prior to 7th edition and me coming on, uh, there was a, a handful of years, really, where there wasn't a lot of Call of Cthulhu releases. Chaosium were not in their best of times financially 
and um and maybe you get one release a year if that um and um there wasn't a lot of development on those releases they were pretty much as is as delivered to them by you know by whoever had written them and so some of them were a little varying in quality some of them are good some of them not quite so good just need a little bit more time and, and editorial perhaps um so i was kind of coming in from a position where there's really great game that you know done really good stuff some years ago and but in in kind of in in memory it it nearly died there was hardly anything in terms of new out for it so there was a real desire to kind of get quite a lot of new stuff out initially to kind of just to prove this not a deadline and then you know we're going to now and here's some new scenarios that support that and then it was a case of well i take some old scenarios and update them and rework them for seventh edition and get those out so uh and then suddenly i'm doing masks of nath attack which is a, a massive classic campaign mm-hmm. um and but getting that back out in you know into print and so forth um and um yeah so it's a real mix of things in terms of uh what's coming along and and uh what sounds good and you know i I mean from day one i've been trying to get a new edition of gaslight out so for 10 years i've been trying to get to the next edition of gaslight out and um uh we are that close to releasing it in terms of it within the next 12 months uh that should that will be out uh but it's taken 10 years because of other things come and they they get put up the priority list and, right you know and and so it's it's ever changing you know yeah that's awesome to hear about uh cthulhu gaslight we've that that's definitely one we've been looking forward to i think pete's actually currently writing a cthulhu gaslight scenario for our show for us to play oh so, so that sounds great hopefully we'll get <laughs> I'm, that. I'm a big fan of gaslight i always have been so it's kind of mm-hmm. one of my one of my personal faves so yeah for sure um uh, yeah and with with all this development of all all these games, all these different settings, um, so when we when we spoke to to Sandy, he he told us this really cool story about when he was play testing the original Call of Cthulhu, the uh, um, the sanity mechanics that he built, you know, started actually causing the players to become more afraid of the events in the game, and like as their sanity got lower, the players themselves would then start to try to keep their characters from seeing anything disturbing. They'd have them cover their eyes and hide and flee. Uh, he said that that was one of the moments when like he knew he had something special here, you know, when the rules of the game, it actually started affecting the players and the characters in the same way. Um, so over all your years of developing and, and, and all this, have you ever had any of those kinds of moments where uh, a rule or a mechanic that you wrote or created um, really once it hit the table, just ended up going way better or, or working just like amazingly once it actually hit the table or just something that was like, had completely unforeseen consequences when it actually hit the table. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, I have to say, I, I didn't come up with the rule for pushing. That was Paul Fricker came up with that rule, but when okay. uh, I was it's a brilliant uh, rule, I love it. <laughs> one, one of the first people to kind of play test, if you sort of mean, so we mm-hmm. were still, you know, we were working together on it, but he came up with the concept. Um, and so I think that one, when when I first, you know, told the players about the rule and was running a game and I kind of said, oh, you failed the role. Would you like to push the role? Yeah. And they all suddenly looked really scared. <laughs> I thought, yeah. actually, it, it reminded me, because obviously I knew Sandy's story about Sandy's in that particular game. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of that 
point when thinking actually this is exactly what we wanted because it's a hurricane Mm -hmm. we want people to kind of be apprehensive about pushing roll because if they fail it the outcome is going to be much worse so it's something to generally you know it's a risk right and so having the players kind of respond that they did they understood it was a risk and they understood they had a choice to take the risk or not the intention increased which was exactly what we wanted for a, a horror role-playing game so that was right. really good to see that happening because it, it kind of mirrored that sanity experience in in that first game the other the other rule in terms of that I had a bit more development on was um Pope Cthulhu where I was looking at look spends and the different things mm-hmm. people could do with look and and um particularly I really enjoyed coming up with look spends for the villains in Pope Cthulhu so things the keeper okay. could, could spend luck on for their right. characters, so the villains. And so there was one rule which was uh, which is called lookout master, which is basically um, if your top cultist, your head villain in your pop the game is is about to be killed by you know the players have you know shot him or, or about to do mm-hmm. something, they can spend their luck and have and use lookout master. Which one of their minions leaps in front of the villain and they like me and not him, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> And uh, it buys the uh, the villain yeah, a little bit more time to get away or, right. you know, uh, and so forth. And so uh, when uh, when I uh, when that you know, book went out and then I started to hear people using the rule and talking about and, and they're telling me how it happened in the game and the players' yeah. reactions and then what happened next. It was really these fantastic stories. These kind of really kind of dramatic. Oh, and then then yeah, we, we you know we we tried to kill. Villain, but but they use lookout master. We couldn't get him, and then we had to chase him, and then we but we finally cornered him, and we got him in the end. But you know, yeah, it's all this building of this sort of you know drama mm-hmm. uh, and excitement, and so that was that was really cool to kind of see that again the intention behind the rule were seemed to be working, and that I mean that's right. to me what it's about is when you've come up with a rule, um, you you kind of have you know you can play test it, and and but the real acid test is somebody else playing it when you're not in the room yeah right does it have, does it have the same effect yeah. and, and that's when you know that um hopefully it's doing what you intended mm-hmm. yeah I, yeah i love that it is it is a great rule it, de- it definitely adds that element of that kind of pulp cinematic events you know that just ratchet up the drama you know like you said where the cultist jumps in front and saves the villain at the last moment that's exactly the kind of thing you would see in a in a, a the mummy movie or or Indiana Jones or something, and then that stretches out into a, an exciting chase right after, you know, um, and also pushing the role. There's there are a few moments better as a keeper than asking that question and watching the whole vibe around the table just change as everybody like tenses up and gets that look in their eye. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they've got to. Um... You know they've got to want it in a way, and uh, <laughs> right. sometimes it's inevitable because you know they they really want to you know climb that wall or knock yeah. through the door or whatever, and and, it, and you know yeah we're going to do it, you know, and um and and either way they you know if they if, if they roll a failure it's a kind of oh no, and yeah. if they roll a success, yeah, <laughs> you get a yeah. kind of a, a great reaction either way, which is you know mm-hmm. at the end of the day as I always say you know it's a game. And it's meant to be fun, so anything exactly. that kind of is fun is, is hopefully you know working well. Mm-hmm. And those reactions when you're the when you're the keeper, 
the reactions are what you play for. It's what makes the game fun is getting your players engaged and getting those types of reactions that, that you know, pushing the role or, uh, you know, gives you. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think about, you know, all the kind of gaming war stories I hear, you know, in my life as a you know writer and, and game developer and even just mm -hmm. as a player back in the day. The stories that people tell about their old Call of Cthulhu story, games are always really cool because they're all always really dramatic. They're always about oh the the, the time we all died horribly, the time we we we, we tried to beat up Neathotep and and we got fried and and there are all these times that the players have failed horribly, but the players love it and that's what they they talk about all their failures in such a positive way. Um, and it's something I don't often hear about or hear the, in the same way from you know, other kind of game systems or the styles of play. Uh, you know, I, I, I get the kind of, oh, you know, that, that time we all went into the Tomb of Horrors because we mm -hmm. all died horribly. That's very similar. But um, I don't I don't get the same kind of war stories. Everyone's got, you know, similar stories, you know, if they play D&D or Traveller or whatever it may be. But I, I don't quite get the same level of thrill. <laughs> On the players, sometimes <laughs> mm -hmm. when when they're telling me those stories, as opposed to their their terrible failures in playing Call of Duty <laughs> and so forth. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's one of the most fun things you can get with Call of Cthulhu, which is is kind of contradictory to pretty much every other game. When when you're playing D and D, you get really invested in your character. You get tons and tons of levels. I've seen many. Uh, um, you know, a teenager, uh, my sons are 14 and they, they play D and D weekly, but their, their character dies and they'll legitimately cry because they are so attached to the character. But on call of Cthulhu, it's, it's entertaining and it's sometimes hilarious. And so that's, that's one thing that's really cool about, about call of Cthulhu. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so with all, all these years behind you in your, uh, professional career and writing and developing, uh, I, I mean, you guys at Chaosium, you also have a very vibrant uh, community, uh, a content creating community over at the Miskatonic Repository. So, uh, so you now, if uh, if Cult of Keepers Mike was back there working in the uh, Miskatonic Repository, creating these these scenarios for publication, what advice would you give him? Sure, I mean to, to be frank, I, I wished it existed in my day. You know, when right. I had all these scenarios, we just didn't, you know, the opportunities back then were, were, were pretty limited. You either mm -hmm. took a chance and sent something to a games company and yeah. you may or may never hear from it again or whatever. Kids uh, these or, days don't understand you know, the tough now, times before the internet. Got, the barriers <laughs> are so low to entry in that sense of if you've mm -hmm. got a design, you've got uh, at least an ounce of uh, ability to kind of produce something and, and put it up as a PDF, then, you know, the, the options are fantastic for people. And that's why, you know, I really embrace the, the community side is because I think, you know, ultimately I see it's the next generation, you know, I, it's how I started. They've just got a little bit more kind of, uh, you know, technology to help them than I did. But, right. but literally, you know, whoever will be sat doing what I'm doing in, you know, well, mm, 30 years time, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's going to probably be somebody who's been putting stuff on the community, you know, at some point and developing their skills through all these kind of things, just the way that same way I did and the people that did the job before me did. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'd certainly be making use of the community uh, uh, content program for uh, Call of Cthulhu and getting, you know, my scenarios up there. Probably, I'd, <laughs> I'd have probably done that one tell me how bad they were those early scenarios and uh, <laughs> you know probably never never do it again but uh, but uh, that's a learning experience but uh, 
Yeah, no, I think uh, all these kind of communities, and, and it's great to see other games companies, you know, obviously D&D does it already anyway, but you know, other games mm-hmm. companies are, are doing similar content programs, which is just great. You know, at the end of the day, it is about, it's a real um, experience and learning experience for people to kind of really, you know, to get their hands dirty in terms of producing something that, you know, and, and getting the ability to get feedback it from from players who pick it up and use it, which mm-hmm. is all really valuable when you're, you know, especially when you're starting out. But even even now, you know, people give me feedback on my stuff. It's always useful. So, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we are bumping up against the time that we asked for you to hang out for. So, uh, um, we did have one more project that we didn't want to ask you about. If if you if you had sure. any extra time? <laughs> sure. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because it is another uh, uh another thing that we are very passionate about, but uh it is shifting gears a little bit too. Uh but yeah, if you're cool with hanging out for another few minutes, uh we uh we're big movie buffs also here over at the over at the Arkham Files. And so we wanted to ask you about another uh project you're currently involved in called Fantastic Flops that is over at Kickstarter right now. Um uh, the the project itself, it's a book about misunderstood movies that didn't do so well at the box office, but were fantastic films nonetheless. And uh, we love the idea so much. We actually backed the project at the uh, $135 level. So oh, we might be coming you. back That's for the ghost show podcast. But can you tell us a little bit about fantastic flops and how you got involved with that project? Yeah, sure. Um, Christopher, the editor, the, the owner of Ghost Show Press. Um, this is the third book uh, he's put together in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I know him through a mutual friend who introduced me and said, hey, because the first book he did was on horror films. And it's basically uh, right. it was a book on, you know. Um, transgressive horror, right? Transgressive horror. You know, what mm-hmm. horror films had a real impact on all manner of things. Right. And um, so my our mutual friend said, Mike, you really need to go and write an essay about Jaws, which is one of my, you know, if not my oh, favorite yeah. film of all time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and so it kind of put us together and, and I said, well, I, I'll try and write something on Jaws. And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So I, I wrote something for the first book, the book on horror uh, around Jaws. Um, and that, that was started successfully and came out. And it's a great book of, you know, if you're into horror films, fantastic. Uh, and then the second book was on science fiction films. I unfortunately didn't have the time, the capacity to kind of put an essay in for that one. Right. So I didn't contribute to that one, but I, I backed that myself to, you know, cause I, I wanted to get a copy of it mm-hmm. and that's full of really cool sci-fi films, many of which I've never seen or heard of. It's, it's really, you know, if you're into these kind of things, they are wealths of kind of information about films that you may have never seen and that you now want to go and see. Right. So they're good. Uh, anyway, so, um, Having done sci-fi and horror, um, Christopher um, decided to, uh, the next one would be Fantastic Flops, which was, as you say, kind of films that that um, maybe critically or financially flopped, but actually had a bigger impact or, or had had uh, some sort of influence beyond, you know, beyond them. They kind of, you know, were more than just a flop, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh and so um, I was invited to, you know, to contribute to this one again. And fortunately, I had a bit of a bit more time. And um, I thought, well, why don't I do uh, an essay about the Big Lebowski? Because, you know, what's not to love about that film? And it, it right. wasn't a particularly 
big success at the time, but has become, you know, almost like Rocky Horror in this kind of cult right. kind of yeah, status sure. of the yeah, film. Sure. Uh, and I thought, well, that sounds like a you know great thing to write about. So I, I um, I've written that as a, a an essay for the book, along with you know many other people writing about many different kind of styles of films. Um, and so yeah, so that that was very fortunate to kind of be able to contribute to that, and um, looking forward to you know seeing that one come out in, in due course. And but thanks for uh, for backing it. That's uh, that's what that's wonderful. Yeah, we're we're excited to see it with uh with the Big Lebowski you mentioned. It's kind of uh, when you look at the last 20 years, as far as you know, cult following goes, uh, it's it's gonna be at or near the top of the list. Um, did you did you get did you select the Big Lebowski to to write about, or was that um, did they have a list and and you kind of got assigned Big Lebowski? How did that work out? Oh no! You you always pick your favorite. So whatever, whichever of these books you're you're writing for, you you mm-hmm. bas- you basically nominate the film. Say, I would like to write about the Big Lebowski, and sometimes you have a second choice. You kind of go, I'd like to write about Big Lebowski, and my second choice, if somebody else is doing it, or you don't want that one, here's my second choice film, kind of thing. Um, uh, and as far as I know, I've always had, I've always been fortunate to get my first choice. So. Um, so yeah, so you nominate because at the end of the day, you want to write about something you have a bit of a passion for. Mm-hmm. So um, so rather than you know being told mm-hmm. oh, you know now I need to go and write about I don't know Barbie or something, <laughs> um, uh, you know you're, you're writing about something you've you've already got an interest in and you know and you know you feel you can say something about really. So yeah. Mm. So uh, what was your second choice? I knew you were going to ask me as I said. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm now trying to remember what it was. Um, oh man, because I did. And I, I, uh, I, I, I can't cheat because I can't. I won't find the email in time. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Oh yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. Doctor Sleep. The oh, okay. Um, the yeah, sequel yeah. to The Shining mm-hmm. uh, with Ewan McGregor. Right. Uh, which which again didn't um, particularly set the world on fire on its release, but subsequently. Uh, um, I found there's a lot of people who've got a lot of love for that film, and uh, including mm-hmm. myself. And uh, and it, it's kind of a little bit of a it kind of went under the radar a little bit. So uh, that was my second right. choice. But uh, yeah, yeah. that's a good choice. It's a good choice. I also like I also liked uh, Doctor Sleep. I think nice Mike Flanagan's really one of the uh, best horror filmmakers out there right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really know much about uh, Flanagan's work, and the first thing I actually saw. Um, it was, uh, was Oculus. Okay. Um, and um, I didn't really know anything about the film. I just thought it was going to be another another kind of ghost story. Right. Not really expecting anything. And then because the you know, way certain things are done in the film, I realised, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. This this right. is, this is good. This this is original. I've not seen this done before. I'm now interested. And mm-hmm. um, and so I've been you know, a bit of a fan of uh, his work as he's gone through because. I think he is bringing something new a lot of the time. And he's certainly, you can see, um, he takes care with the material and he's mm-hmm. clearly got a, a love of horror in that sense. So, um, and so it's not just somebody making a quick book on a horror film. It's somebody who actually, right. he's one of us, you know what I mean? He, he, yeah, he right, likes, yeah. You know, he, he's one of us in that sense that he loves horror films. Exactly. And, and you can see that. Uh, yeah, he has a, a love for the genre and, He's yeah. trying to innovate, but also maintain the, you know, the essence of the of the genre yeah. and keep and retain everything that makes it good and what made us love it in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, let's see. Are, are you a big fan of those types of movies? Like the, the misunderstood gems or even like the crappy movies that are so bad. They're good. Oh yeah. 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 We, we <laughs> me and Paul and other friends who used to get together for a weekend and watch all sorts of horror films and strange films and stuff that, you know, somebody had recommended that, you know, you could only get on some sort of dodgy streaming somewhere, yeah. some, you know, <laughs> Asian horror film or something like that. And, yeah. we kind of go, and we never knew what we were going to be watching. It was, you know, kind of like, is this actually good or is it going to be just so bad it's good? And, right. and you know, and they were all, all of them, something along the, in that spectrum. So, you know, uh, watching crazy, crazy, weird films and and, and <laughs> classics as well. You know, could just be watching kind of classic stuff as well. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, there are some, there are some particularly bad films that are just fun to watch, aren't they? At the end of the day, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. We we've we've had the same thing over the years. We could just called it crappy movie night, where we'd find a uh, something that looked horrendous or awful and get together with all the all their buddies and watch it, you know, riff on it <laughs> like you do. Do you have any uh, recommendations from that well of oh, amazing I mean, cinema? <laughs> Where'd you start? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. I'll tell you what I did uh, watch the other night, uh, which is a film I'd, I'd kind of heard about but never had the opportunity to see, is an Australian. Uh, it's kind of tends to be called a horror film, but it's, it's more of a thriller kind of okay. dark film. Uh, called Wake in Fright, um, and uh, it's I think it's 1971. There was actually a recent remake, kind of television remake in two parts of it, and that's quite okay. faithful to the original film to some degree. But um, it's about this Australian young Australian teacher in, in the outback who's trying to get back to Sydney and kind of arrives in this other you know, little town in the middle of the outback in the middle of nowhere. And one thing leads to another, and he suddenly finds himself with no money. He's lost all his money gambling it, and 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 you know is at the mercy of the the strange townsfolk um, who aren't really that strange. They're just you know, uh, but uh, uh, and he you know, gets into sort of you know from one worse situation to the next uh, until it kind of resolves. But uh, that that's. Um, that was an interesting one. It's uh, not for everyone because it's got uh, there's one scene, the night scene, where he, he's kind of forced to go kind of with these kind of um, crazed people who are going basically shooting kangaroos. It's quite a graphic kind of uh, hunting sequence. Mm -hmm. um, that's not for everyone, I would say. The TV version is uh, is certainly far less uh, gruesome in that sense. It's still not pleasant, but it's not, mm -hmm. um, but it's not uh, as bad as the original film in that sense. If uh, you have any sensibility to that, um, other than that, I always say something like Primer because it's one of those films that has flown under the radar for many people because it's a, a very low budget film. I don't know if you have heard of Primer, but I haven't uh, actually. Okay, so it's a it's a micro budget American little independent film. I'm pretty sure you can find it on Amazon Prime and all that kind of thing. Uh, and it's these it's sort of set in the modern day in in kind of Silicon Valley, and it's these couple of guys who are basically trying to just come up with ideas for new patents uh, from from the garage basically, and just trying to make some extra money right. kind of thing. And they're doing these kind of they're, they're quite techie people, uh, and they're coming up with these little kind of things. And um, they never use the words in the film "time machine," but basically. Right. 
they kind of unwittingly kind of build a time machine um, and then begin to use it. But it's not, you know, it's not like movie time travel where it's all easy and no paradoxes. It's right. all that. It's basically they 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 can set they can set their time machine and go back a certain amount of time. But when they go back, they've got to wait in a hotel room because their other you know, their their other person. Uh, that you know that, that the other version of them is still walking around and so they right. have to kind of not cross over the, not cross the streams and and yeah. um, <laughs> and then there's all these little things you start noticing like every time these characters are talking one of them's got an earpiece in listening to something and and that's without kind of giving the plot away but basically you're not until the end when you start to realize you've been watching all these different versions of them without realizing it. And right. the primer is they're listening to the conversation that's already taken place, having the conversation again. And, and, and it just gets it. And in terms of the actual logic of it, it just blows up in terms of like all these kind of potentials. And there are, it's kind of mind blowing in terms of like yeah. weirdness. And um, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it, I highly recommend it if you're into kind of slightly strange films. Cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, it's, it's, it's really, it's really worth a, worth a look. But it will blow your mind, and you watch it, and then you re- you want to just rewatch it again to try and understand it, and you rewatch it again, and you still don't understand it, and <laughs> you can watch it again anyway because it's it's good. So. Cool. Yeah, I love that stuff. There you go, Pete. Throw that on our list. I already wrote it down. It's right up Sweet. our alley. So. <laughs> we'll queue it up. Yeah, I stumbled on uh, a, a little indie sci-fi horror one on on Prime the other day that I loved. Uh, the the endless have you seen that oh yeah that would have been my other recommendation yeah, yeah. the endless uh, yeah it's fantastic have you seen the the kind of prequel film to that called resolution oh i haven't i was looking okay, at so, more from so the those same filmmakers that director yeah um, yeah they, uh, they 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 made this just before the endless uh, it's called resolution and uh and basically you meet the characters in the endless so there's a, okay. there's a scene in the endless where there's a, a guy or a couple of guys in a cabin that they kind mm-hmm. of come across. The first one is all about those guys in that cabin. So they're in oh, cool. the same situation. Yeah. But um, but having watched The Endless, you'll you'll probably appreciate it even more because you don't know what's going on with them. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and The Endless kind of tells you a little bit more. And um, and so it, they work very well as a pair in that sense because they're, they're all part of the same story effectively. So, yeah, cool. go, yeah definitely watch the resolution. It's Awesome. Yeah. I got to grab that. Cause yeah, I just found uh endless the other day. And so I was like, Oh, this is so good. Um, yeah, I really loved it. Loved that, that, that great scene when the, is it they're, they're throwing a rope up in the air? And it's yeah. Just, <laughs> who's holding the rope? I don't get it. I know. Oh, yeah. It's good. I know it was one of those movies that gave me hope that there's, you know, there's still indie filmmakers out there that yeah. are making these really great creative original movies you know, which there yeah. just seems to be a, a lack of these days. So when I found that, it was really refreshing. So yeah, I'll have yeah, to check and out. And, and, they've done, and they've done some other crazy weird films as well subsequently, and uh, cool. they're all worth checking out. They're all mm-hmm. they're all off the wall in some way. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, our last thing on the agenda, Mike. Well, we'll let you go. We really appreciate you hanging out longer here, especially talk about awesome movies, which we always love to do. Um, but we wanted to announce the winner for our freedom from boredom contest uh, in which we are giving away a brand new uh, Nintendo switch with a sweet custom Arkham Files skin on it. Uh, the call of Cthulhu video game. And also Mike's Mike Mason's starter set uh, 
for the Call of Cthulhu tabletop role-playing game. So, you know, we're, we're trying to get you uh, hooked. We're giving you the, uh, all the gateways to get you hooked. And Mike has very graciously agreed to announce who our winner is. So Pete's queuing up our, our spin wheel here. So whenever you're ready, Pete, let it go. Can you guys see my screen with the rad spin wheel yeah. here? Yeah. It's right. <laughs> amazing. Here we go with the spin of the wheel. I know you guys have been waiting on this. And the, and this and, and the name's going to be where that little arrow is pointing. Just pop up. Oh, it's, oh, it tells me. So uh, you guys want to want me to tell tell you who's won? Yeah, yeah go for it. Okay, so uh, well, congratulations to Nicholas Livingston. You have won. All right, and, uh, congrats. Got right. Some sweet, sweet, uh, sweet, sweet rewards coming to you. Yes, we will reach out and uh, get you those fantastic prizes. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for announcing our winner of our Freedom from Boredom <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> giveaway. My pleasure. Thanks for doing that. And Mike, again, thanks so much for being here on the show. We really appreciate it. That was tons of fun. Uh, I Honestly, I could keep going all night. <laughs> well, it's, but, it's a genu genuine pleasure chatting to you guys. Uh, uh, you know, shooting the breeze. And particularly, thank you for... Uh, shoehorning in a bit of uh, film talk which i rarely get to do so it's uh, it's uh, it's been a delight so uh you know, anytime you want me back i'm uh i'm more than happy so uh you know oh. it's been uh, been a, a genuine uh, a lot of fun so thank you awesome yeah absolutely we're gonna hold you to that you set in stone <laughs> yeah love to reach you out love to have you back at any time mike so yeah thanks again uh you have a good evening over there in your secret layer and well, hopefully too. we'll talk to you again soon all right, you take care. Bye-bye for now. Thank take you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Arkham Files Dossier Series. Huge thank you to our special guest, Mike Mason. He was awesome. Additional thank you to him for announcing our big winner for our Freedom from Boredom giveaway, which leads me to my next point. Congratulations again to Nicholas Livingston. You have won a brand new mother flipping Nintendo Switch with a stylish Arkham Files skin, the Call of Cthulhu Switch video game, and last but not least, the Call of Cthulhu starter set written by new friend of the show, Mike Mason. Once again, please visit our website, www.arkhamrpg.com for sweet merch. Check us out on social media and Patreon at www.parkham.com patreon.com forward slash the Arkham Files for sweet bonus content. Until next time, don't do anything Alex tells you to do.